I came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 21st of September 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And this week our special guest is Andrew P. Street who is a journalist who was with me and 28 other space geeks at Tintin Billa last Friday night to watch firsthand and visit the operations centre at Tintin Billa, the deep space communications complex run by the CSIRO for NASA and JPL. Andrew has written a wonderful piece for The Guardian and he's given us permission to read it out here. And that's followed by Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian explains how we have responded differently to different missions in different ways and then Ian will tell us what's up doc, what's up in the night sky and I'll be giving a brief news roundup as usual. So now we cross over to The Guardian to hear Andrew P. Street's wonderful Cassini report. Tracing Cassini's fiery death was like seeing a heart monitor flatline. At a NASA site nestled in a valley not far from Australia's capital city, a lucky few got a closer view of the end of a spacecraft's 20-year odyssey. Deep Space Station 43 is an imposing piece of hardware. It's a 70-metre diameter radio telescope, the largest in the Southern Hemisphere, and on this cold Canberra Friday night, red lights were flashing to signify it was sending data to one of the space missions it monitored. It was the Cassini probe for the final time. DSS-43 is located at the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex, the CDSCC, It's a NASA site run by Australia's scientific research organisation, the CSIRO, nestled in a valley in Tidbinbilla, a treacherously kangaroo-filled 45-minute drive from the nation's capital. The public are rarely permitted beyond the cafe and visitor's centre, but this was a very special night. 30 people had been chosen via application to be present for the end of the almost 20-year odyssey of the Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn, which ended just before 10pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Friday, with the spacecraft plunging into the atmosphere of the gas giant planet. There, it will be vaporised into its constituent atoms, a decision made by NASA to avoid the threat of the probe and its radioactive power source and its possible hitchhiking bacteria crashing and potentially contaminating one of Saturn's moons and the life that looks increasingly possible thereon. 
I've been following this mission since the beginning. My late father and I had been captivated by the Voyager missions of 1977, which took the first ever close-up photographs of Jupiter in 1979 and Saturn in 1980. Although he was very sick by the time Voyager 2 sent back images of Uranus in 1986 and was gone before the first images of Neptune arrived in 1989. But Saturn fascinated us both. Dad, like many scientists at the time, was convinced that if we were to find life anywhere else in the solar system, it would be on the massive Saturnian moon of Titan. So when NASA and the European Space Agency announced a joint mission to Saturn, Cassini, incorporating the ESA's Huygens lander that would reach the surface of Titan, I knew I'd be paying close attention on Dad's behalf. I scoured the media in pre-internet 1997 for information about the launch. I greedily devoured every detail about the long journey to Saturn via gravity swingbys of Venus, Earth and Jupiter. I marvelled at the science Cassini did. The discovery of seven new moons, the mapping of Saturn's rings, the discovery of methane oceans on Titan, and the shocking discovery of water geysers on Enceladus, suggesting another potential site for biological life. And years later, a chance meeting with a holidaying member of NASA's imaging team meant I got a peek at the freshly received pictures sent from Cassini the previous day. Even without processing, they were stunningly beautiful. Saturn is the Kate Blanchett of the solar system. It's simply impossible to take a bad picture. Everyone I talked to on Friday evening, postgraduates, school teachers, science educators, space nerds like myself, who are slightly confused as to why they made the cut, has a similar story about how Cassini captured their imagination. Our phones had all been switched off since arriving on site, as the signals from the four telescopes receiving were far fainter than the pings of a cell phone trying to find a tower. There's no reception in this valley in any case for that very reason. The celebration of Cassini's fiery death began with a tour of a CDSCC site, including a tour of the telescopes and the command centre. A walk about the tiny but amazing visitor's centre, which includes a chunk of volcanic basalt, the only piece of moon rock on display outside the US, and presentations from NASA and CSIRO staff. For an audience of space science obsessive, it was wonderful stuff. Then, a little after 8.30pm, there was a non-alcoholic toast to Cassini, and in real time, the probe was entering Saturn's atmosphere. Saturn was about 1.5 billion kilometres from Earth at this point in our orbits, so the radio transmissions from Cassini travelling at the speed of light were still taking just over 83 minutes to get to us. When the data arrived, it would be a ghost of a robot that hadn't existed for more than an hour. The mood to this point had been one of excitement, but there was now a subtle shift. Even the CDSCC staff, who make a point of not getting emotional, in contrast to their more excitable colleagues at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, were starting to get choked up. Half an hour before the signal was due to vanish, the skies above the complex cleared and everyone trooped outside to where the DSS-43 was pointing at Saturn, which looked like an unusually bright star in the western sky. By this point, 
The data of the final transmission had passed the orbit of Jupiter and was heading towards that of Mars. Then we went back in to wait the inevitable. At 9.53 AEST, as predicted, there was a wobble. There was a wobble in the previously stable X-radio band. It jumped around for a few seconds and then went dead. A few seconds later, the stronger S-radio transmission did the same. And contact was officially lost. Of course, by this time, Cassini was nothing but a mist of atoms floating among the swirling cloud tops of Saturn. But the effect in the room was like seeing a heart monitor flatline. There was a deep intake of breath and then silence. No one made eye contact. We were told California's Jet Propulsion Laboratory had grief counsellors on site for staff, some of whom had dedicated decades to the mission. I could see why. On the display showing the status of the four telescopes on site, DSS-34 and DSS-36 continued to communicate with the far-off Voyager 2 probe. DSS-43 and DSS-53 were silent. And as we walked out into the frigid night air, DSS-43 was gently moving into position for its next assignment. Saturn still shone bright in the sky. Thanks for that, Andrew P. Street. And now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brenda. Great to be talking with you again, Ian. It's going to be a wonderful episode again this week. It is indeed. I believe we're talking about uh, the last moments of Cassini on this program. We certainly will. And earlier in this episode, we've heard a report from a Guardian journalist called Andrew P. Street. He wrote a wonderful story for The Guardian. And But what I'd like to do tonight with you is, first of all, hear about your reaction to Cassini, and then we'll go on and I'll ask you what's been up in the night sky and what to look for in the morning skies and evening skies over the next two weeks. And we'll go on to your tangent. But first of all, Ian, can you tell me your observations of Cassini over the last few days? I've been watching uh, what's been happening on the internet and the things that have been downloaded from Cassini and reflecting on the things we saw. I'm actually going to deal with a lot of this in the tangent, but I'd like to make the point that uh, my son was born around about the same time Cassini achieved orbit around Saturn, and there hasn't been a moment in his life until now when there hasn't been a robot around Saturn taking amazing photographs of truly astonishing things. For those who haven't been following close, one of the most uh, amazing images coming back from Cassini was the images of the ring system in details that we've never been able to see before. Yep. We've been able to see the dust spires across the rings, the shepherd moons, the propellers in the rings, which are disturbances and distortions of the rings caused by small clusters of dust moving through the ring system. 
We've seen the shepherd moons themselves. We've seen the, the shadows of the moons on the surface of Saturn. It's been a truly amazing. If you look through a telescope, the thing that is outstanding about Saturn is its ring system. Now, to most of us with fairly ordinary telescopes, you'll see a broad band with the hint of the Cassini division in it and hints of colour towards the edges of the rings. But Cassini made the ring system truly amazing. We were able to see degrees of detail we never imagined beforehand. And the last moments of Cassini over the past few weeks have been repetitive dives uh, close to the ring system coming between the rings and Saturn itself yep. to really have a much better look. This was left right at the end of the mission because there's always the chance that Cassini would hit some random bit of space debris and be knocked out. So passing with just above the atmosphere of Saturn and the inner edges of the rings produced some truly amazing images. The other amazing thing, of course, about the Cassini mission is that the, all these images are available to everybody. If you go to the Cassini website, you can download all of the images from the Cassini mission. And lots of the images that are actually shown on the Cassini website now as part of the tribute are images that have been assembled by amateurs that have taken the images, uh, the raw images, and done the necessary details to stitch them together and put the colour in them and bring out some amazing detail in these structures. So for most of us, Cassini isn't gone. Cassini's legacy is still there in the terabytes worth of images. There's lots of things there for us to take down, make our own, and make our own gorgeous memories of the Cassini mission. Indeed, and those last couple of hours of data that were sent down live, it will take months and months for the mission scientists to analyse that data from the 12 instruments that were turned on, and we'll be hearing more about it. I thought this might be a good opportunity for me to tell you, Ian, about my experience on Friday night. I think that'd be fantastic. I'd love to hear it, because I'll be with... Uh... Uh, sitting at the other end, we were listening to the live mission control broadcast and seeing some of your tweets as they came through from the Timbin Biller station, which was feeding data to NASA. So in one way, we, uh, we were seeing this at a second remove. You were seeing the data first, and then NASA would, would talk about it on their show, and, and especially the countdown going from latitude 40 to latitude 20 to latitude 10 when the, you know, the spacecraft began to tumble and then burn up. That was all fairly moving, but it was also the stuff that you, you are, uh, the Timber Villa people were sending over to NASA in the first place. So you got first bite of the cherry, so to speak. It certainly did. I was very lucky. I was one of 30 people that were invited to come to a special event at the CDSCC, the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex. And the first thing that happened was we were instructed to turn our phones off because the signals that come out of phones and the responding signals from transmitters can interfere with the signals that the deep space network is looking for from a billion kilometres away. It's situated in a valley at a place called Tidbinbilla, not far, about 45 minutes from Canberra. And the first impression of it is one of awe, Ian. DSS-43 is huge. It's a 70-metre dish. 
It's a fully steerable dish and it's amazing. And also on the site, we got to look at DSS 46 and that's still there. It was moved from Honeysuckle Creek and it was a dish which received images of Neil Armstrong's famous giant leap, his small step for mankind on the 21st of July 1969. Amazing. It was, it's great to see that it's still there. It's not operational, of course, but it's a great sculpture and a great moment in history. We were also very fortunate in the evening was very well structured and we were made very welcome with the NASA goodie bags and everything. (laughs) But then we got to meet Shannon McConnell, who has been with Cassini for 18 of Cassini's 20-year history. And she gave a wonderful presentation and story of not only the Cassini mission over the 18 or 20 years of it, but also from a very personal view. And it was great to see that science is very awesome, but is also very personal. And we'll be interviewing Shannon in future episodes. We had the head honchos there from the CSIRO, from NASA, from JPL, and they told us all about the new communication designs that will be boosting the comrades a thousandfold between Earth and various missions from NASA, from the European Space Agency, and from the Japanese and the Italians, and hopefully from the Australians over the next 10 years. So that was all very good. Personally, Ian, I felt a bit of, and I began to understand what academics and researchers talk about, imposter syndrome. Oh, yes, I know all about that, yes. Yes, there were about 30 people there. There were the NASA JPL techs, the CDSCC techs like Richard Stevenson, who we interviewed on an earlier episode. We had Glenn Nagel there and Dr. Corinne McDonnell from the CDSCC who organised the whole event. We had astrophysicists like Fiona Panther, who we've interviewed before. She was there. There were science teachers like like Fina Gibson and Dina Fan and Malak Dubois. So science teachers were also represented there. There were space geeks like Duncan Hamilton, who came up from Melbourne, and journalists like Guardian journalist Andrew Street, which we featured his great story early in this episode. And the event itself, Ian, was just astonishing. At one stage, the clouds cleared and we all rushed outside from the presentation area and we saw this monstrous, huge DSS-43 pointed towards Saturn and we could see Saturn. There was this amazing clear space between the clouds and we got to see the dish pointing at Saturn. It was a very spine-tingling moment. And then because the signal takes 83 minutes to get from Saturn to Earth, we had a little celebration in real time at the actual time that Cassini was merging with the atmosphere of Saturn. So we did a toast and we cut the cake and... That was also a wonderful moment. And then we just waited like the rest of the world 
for the signal to disappear. What we had on the big screen was the feed that was coming directly down into the 70 metre dish. And first we saw the X-band disappear and then the stronger S-band faded out and then in the room among all the techs and heavies and us 30 observers, there was an eerie silence and it was a, a wonderful experience and, and it was an astonishing end to a phenomenal mission and a really great event and we just watched after it all finished we watched the dish swivel around and move on to its next target. Uh, that must have been really amazing watching dish uh, moving about. One of my other astronomy folks who I keep in touch with on Facebook was actually camped outside the Deep Space Network and was watching the dish swivel around and uh, as it moved to line up with Saturn and then moved away afterwards. And she's actually posted some uh, photos on Facebook of the dish moving, and that would have been an awesome sight to have seen live and up close. Here in Adelaide, the sky was completely clouded out. I went to have a, a look to wave uh, farewell to Cassini at Saturn, but all I could see was cloud, cloud and more cloud. Fantastic. Good news all around. And I'll get that person's contact details and we'll put them in the show notes and give people the opportunity to go and catch their images. No worries. That'd be fantastic. Very good. Well, so Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? Well, what's up in the sky this week is it's still Jupiter and Speaker over on the western horizon. Those of you who've been watching carefully will have noticed Jupiter and Speaker coming closer and closer together. And now uh, they were at the closest on the 11th of September um, at the beginning of this week. And now they're beginning to move apart again. They're still quite close and they look very beautiful together and um, soon Jupiter will leave Speaker behind. You'll also notice that they're getting lower and lower and towards the horizon. Uh, Jupiter is still visible uh, at the time of astronomical twilight. The sky is in total dark, but it's so close to the horizon that telescopic views of Jupiter will be pretty uh, horrible and murky, although uh, the uh, Jupiter's moons will be still uh, quite good to follow. Come the 22nd, you'll be able to see the pear and the thin crescent moon forming a triangle. That will be very nice to see. And then on the 23rd, Theta, uh, Jupiter and the thin crescent moon form a line. Uh, those of you who have been uh, exposed to the internet will unfortunately know that there's been some people going around saying, oh, look, you've got this amazing lineup where you've got Jupiter, uh, the moon, uh, Jupiter's in Virgo and you've got the Moon, Jupiter lined up and then over in Leo, you've got Venus, Mars and Mercury and this only happens once every 7,000 years and <laughs> bad things are going to happen. Well, uh, no, it's not like that. It's, it's, it's gonna, first of all, it's going to be really hard to see the lineup because, of course, you've got the Sun in the middle of this. So in the evening sky, you'll be able to see Jupiter and the thin crescent Moon on the 23rd, lining up the speaker. That's going to look really nice. In the morning skies, you'll see Venus, Mars and Mercury all nicely lined up too. Unfortunately, they're going to be really close to the horizon. Yep. For those of us in the southern hemisphere, unless you've got a really flat eastern horizon, like an ocean or a desert, they'll be really too deep in the murk of the horizon to see yep. 
flows in the northern hemisphere will favourable a bit, but again, you'll be seeing them fairly uh, deeply in the twilight. They won't be as obvious or exciting uh, to see, although Venus will be lovely to see, but it'll be much harder to see Mars, Mercury in the twilight glow, even though they're all nicely lined up. Yep. Moving on from that, on the 26th and 27th, the waxing moon will bracket Saturn. And now this time when you're looking at Saturn, you will be looking at Saturn without Cassini, the robot which has been for 13 years. Saturn's constant companion is now deep within the planet's atmosphere. Like other, the other gas giants, uh, Jupiter, Saturn doesn't really have a surface. Its atmosphere gets thicker and thicker and thicker until it transits from being a gas to a liquid to something akin to a solid before you get to anything that looks like uh, our familiar rock. So uh, Cassini's uh, parts uh, are a thin metal mist floating about in the atmosphere of Saturn. So that's something to think about next time you look at Saturn. Saturn is also becoming uh, lower in the sky, but it's still a good telescopic target for most of the evening. It doesn't set until after local midnight, so you've still got a fair whack of time from the time the sky has become totally dark until Saturn becomes too low above the horizon to have a, a good look at it in a telescope. Yep. And again, it's bracketed by the, the waxing moon on the 27th. So if, just in case you don't know which uh, of the uh, bright orange objects in the northwestern uh, sky is Saturn, uh, you'll be easily able to tell because on the 26th, the bright yellow object just above the moon is Saturn, and on the 27th, the bright orange yellow object just below the moon is Saturn. Excellent. Uh, the other good guide, of course, to Saturn is the constellation of Scorpio, the scorpion, or the crocodile if you're in uh, Northern Territory. At the moment, uh, Scorpio is almost vertically above the horizon. It's very distinctive. It looks like a question mark. And in the handle of the question mark is the bright red star Antares. If you look up uh, and to the right from the bright red star Antares, the next brightest object you see is the golden glow that is Saturn. Very good. That's the evening sky. Briefly move on to the morning sky. Yep. In the morning sky, we've already heard that uh, that it's going to be Venus, Mercury and Mars. Mercury and Mars are finally uh, coming out of the twilight moon and Venus is settling deeper and deeper. So while Venus is very bright and is relatively easy to see uh, even half an hour before sunrise, over the coming weeks, it'll get lower and lower, and you have to uh, wait closer and closer to sunrise to be able to see Venus clearly. Yep. Mars, although it's climbing out of the twilight, is going to be very difficult to see until right towards the end of the month, and Mercury is going to be uh, incredibly difficult to see. So even though all of the three of them are nicely lined up, it, you'll have great difficulty unless you've got a really flat-level horizon you're waiting until at least half an hour before sunrise and you need, probably will need binoculars to see both Mars and Mercury. Unfortunately, this broadcast goes out after the occultation of Venus, which will be seen from Australia, from, uh, from Indonesia. But uh, hopefully listeners from Australia, Indonesia and Southeast Asia who have watched the occultation of Venus will be able to send in their images and, and their memories to us to uh, discuss this really beautiful and, again, very difficult occultation. Remember, of course, this is an observation only be take, undertaken by people who are very experienced observers because of Venus and the Moon's closeness to the Sun. Yep. That's all that's up in the sky tonight. Over the next week, most of the planets are now coming out of the uh, twilight, but they're still going to be very difficult to see. 
and shortly we're going to be losing Jupiter into the glow of the twilight too. Uh, however, if you're out in central Australia uh, last night, you'd have seen uh, something quite interesting. You'd have seen a fireball streaking uh, uh, above the sky, which was uh, one of the Cosmos uh, rocket boosters coming back into the atmosphere. There was quite a, a lot of chat on uh, Facebook earlier this morning about trying to identify what it was, but it turns out to be a, a piece of Russian space junk. Sadly, tragically, I didn't see anything, but, but to those of you who saw it uh, coming through the sky, it was an amazing fireball throwing off bits and pieces of um, material as it uh, ended up through the atmosphere. And I'd like to imagine that if for any hypothetical Saturnians uh, looking upwards towards Earth, they would have seen a similar uh, view of Cassini as it hurtled through their atmosphere, burning and breaking up as it went. Yep. Now, I did hear that because the temperature on Saturn is so cold, Cassini wouldn't actually burn. It would just break apart and sort of melt rather than burn up and flare. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us this week? Yes, I do. And the tangent is uh, about Cassini's crash, but about how people were reacting to it. On the web, you probably noticed a number of reactions to uh, Cassini's demise. And most of them were in terms of being very sad that uh, that the spacecraft was uh, was going, and some people were crying as the uh, the spacecraft came came down. And it's very interesting. And why is it we are so deeply moved by some crashing spacecraft and not by others? Can you remember a similar outpouring when Galileo probe entered the atmosphere of Jupiter? No, and all of those missions that crashed trying to land on Mars early on. Yeah, well, we're not so excited by them, but Cassini was very special. I think there's a couple of things that, that, that need to be done to have a space mission touch us in the same way. I think it has to be really amazing views, uh, whereas, the, for example, the, the, mission, the Mars missions that just slammed into Mars before they could do anything didn't have the same build-up of lifespan of the of the spacecraft in the same way. And Saturn, Saturn's special to us. Saturn's such a special object. And the images that were sent back were so astoundingly beautiful. Yep. The honeycomb moons, the oceans of Titan, the geysers of Enceladus, and of course, the rings themselves. And so over the years, with 13 years around Saturn was a significantly long time and the imagery was so beautiful that people felt a special connection with it because, again, beautiful imagery, and Jupiter had lots of beautiful imagery too, but Jupiter doesn't move us in the same way that Saturn does. So when it came time to say farewell to Cassini, people had a lot of background built up into it. Other spacecraft which people have been really sad about include a Mars rover that got stuck, Yep. And there's got the most beautiful poignant cartoons from the cartoonist <laughs> it's Casey Lee about about the poor rover waiting and waiting for people to come and pick it up again. Yep. And then there was the Philae Lander from the Rosetta mission. Oh yes. And there's yep. a, a lot of emotion towards Philae because apart from the astonishing strangeness of the images of the comet, we had so much riding on this little lander which landed and bounced and bounced and finally came to rest and then the, the plucky little lander, if I may use that anthropomorphic language, was able to transmit from the, where it was let, lodged in a, uh, in a crevice on the comet. Ian, it was like watching a mother lose a child. 
It was. It was very much like that. And then, and then Pillay came back and they were trying to establish communications and then it faded away again. Hayabusa had so many accidents, things blew up. It's, uh, uh, it had to limp back home uh, using gravitational slingshots and, and uh, what little bit of thruster power had left. And then Hayabusa burned up in the atmosphere as it dropped its package of asteroid dust back to Earth. Now, a lot of Westerners wouldn't have had the same connection, but in Japan, because it was a Japanese space mission, there was an immense feeling about this and one of the most touching cartoons outside of XKCD's rover cartoon uh, was about, about the last moments of Hayabusa. And so I think for, for us to feel connection with these robots, there has to be something like the equivalent of a struggle where uh, a robot has to go through a lot of effort uh, even if that effort is dictated by remote messaging from a faraway mission control to achieve its goal, where it achieves its goal against uh, great odds and then struggles on. Uh, again, the the, uh, the Mars rovers, which have been operating long past the, the time they should have finished, yep. and then when one of them gets stuck in, in the sand and can't move and eventually fades away, you have that very strong connection there. And again, Hayabusa the Pillay lander, whereas with the um, Huygens lander, Huygens landed perfectly, it did its mission, and it was only expected to last a certain amount of time, it lasted a little bit longer, and everyone, yeah, Huygens, but they didn't have the same connection with Huygens as they did with Pillay, which is, is because of the, I think because of the different circumstances, Huygens, everything went, went perfectly, Huygens was lasted as long as it's supposed to, Pillay, everything didn't go perfectly, still worked, and it came back long after it was uh, supposed to be finished. Yep. And so it had all those elements of drama and struggle that make us connect more with the robot and make them more like something organic. And and so Cassini falls in the line with that more than the Galileo orbiter. Yep. And that seems to be the signature of NASA. It seems to be able to extend missions beyond their original design. Yeah. Can you imagine one of our uh, laptop computers or one of our desktop <laughs> computers uh, lasting 20 years in deep space with radiation? I mean, uh, our uh, mobile phones seem to last five years before they become too choked to do anything. Yep. Uh, five years for a desktop computer, uh, 10 years for a desktop computer, and going, what? Why are you still using that? Uh, and the operating system is going, going uh, buggy on you because it's too old. But it's, it's really hard to imagine that uh, Cassini was launched 20 years ago, has uh, been in orbit for 13 years, again, as I said at the beginning of this program, until um, last night. There, there's not been a night uh, or a time when Cassini has not been in orbit around Saturn during my son's entire life. It, it's performed flawlessly all through that, and the mission had even was extended longer because it was it was working beautifully. So quite often uh, NASA ha has missions which last much longer than they should be. As we're speaking, of course, they're think, talking about expanding New Horizons after it flies by MU sixty nine. They're talking about uh, trying to find another target, uh, which would be absolutely fantastic. Yes, and the good news is that those three stations of the Deep Space Network, the Goldstone Station, the Madrid Station, and our wonderful CSIRO NASA 
CDSCC, the Canberra Deep Space Communications Network, will be there to support missions for many, many years to come. Yeah, that's fantastic. The Australian space connection is really strong. And uh, I probably should mention that uh, coming uh, of the uh, week of the 25th of September, the International Astronomical Congress will be in Adelaide, where they'll be talking about space missions and, and all. Um, I believe you're going to be able to come to that, are you not? No, I'm, I'm not scheduled to attend that, Ian. Are you going? No, I'm going up to see my mum. Uh, it's, her 90, it's her 95th birthday. So oh, that's right. Yes. Congratulations. Please extend our congratulations to your mum. Yeah. The other thing I'm going to be missing out on is the sightings to spring uh, star fest. Uh, that's on the 30th and the 30th of September, October. So if anyone's able to make the trip up to um, to sighting spring, it's uh, for those of you who live in Sydney, uh, it's not so far away. For those of you who are in Singapore, San Francisco, sorry you're missing out this year. <laughs> but if you want to come over to Australia, uh, or if you come over to Australia for the International Astronomical Congress, you could do worse than uh, too luck to Starfest sighting spring and, uh, and and participate in that after you've uh, come down from the awesomeness that will be the International Astronomical Congress. Fantastic, Ian. Well, Thank you very much, Ian, Astroblog Musgrove. And thank you very much, Brendan, Deep Space Network. (laughs) It's a very memorable Astrophys episode this time. We've had some fantastic episodes, but I think the, the historic, this particular episode will make it special to all of us. Well, this is a great moment in the golden age of astrophysics. Next up, the Astrophys News. First of all, a report published in Nature Astronomy from Western Sydney University's Professor Ray Norris, Transforming Our View of the Universe. Researchers at Western Sydney University are working to revolutionise the way we study the universe with a review paper showing how radio astronomy can aid our understanding of how galaxies form and evolve and are set to potentially uncover strange new objects and phenomena never seen before. The review paper published in Nature Astronomy charts observations of radio waves invisible to the naked eye from black holes and galaxies from their discovery in 1932 to today's latest technology charting objects billions of light years away. Lead author of the study, Professor Ray Norris, who is also affiliated with the CSIRO, says the survey highlights that we are currently in a surge of discovery with surveys charting radio waves about to start in Australia, South Africa, India, Canada, the United States and Netherlands. This surge will not only revolutionise radio astronomy, but allow us to learn far more about how galaxies form and evolve in the universe. Foremost among these new projects is EMU, Evolutionary Map of the Universe, which will use CSIRO's revolutionary ASCAP, the Australia Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Telescope, to map out the faintest radio galaxies in the sky. 
EMU, led by Ray Norris and consisting of about 300 scientists from 21 countries, is set to raise the number of radio sources, that is, objects in outer space that emit strong radio waves, from 2.5 million discovered so far to about 70 million. Once EMU and the other surveys have finished, the entire radio sky will be mapped and this will transform radio astronomy, he says. It will mean that the entire radio map of the sky will be downloadable on the internet so future radio astronomers can do their astronomy by mining the data on the web. This will firmly place radio astronomy in the toolbox of every astronomer, opening new tracks of unexplored space which could lead to completely unexpected discoveries. Now, to give you an idea of the amount of data that's being produced by radio astronomers, MWA, the Murchison Widefield Array, is producing 3 to 4 petabytes a year. ASCAP, 5 petabytes a year. FAST, the new 500-metre telescope in China, will produce 50 petabytes a year. LOFAR, 3 petabytes. DES, 1 petabyte. LSST, 3 to 5 petabytes. And the SKA-1 will produce up to 130 petabytes per year and ending at 750. A huge amount of data. We must find ways to save it and not lose any of it. It will become as valuable as those glass plates from the early 20th century. Next, we report on the May 2018 launch of the NASA InSight mission to Mars. NASA has just approved the 2018 launch of the Mars InSight mission. NASA is moving forward with the spring 2018 launch of its InSight mission to study the deep interior of Mars, following final approval this week by the agency's Science Mission Directorate. The interior exploration using seismic investigations, geodesy and heat transport mission was originally scheduled to launch in March of this year, but NASA suspended launch preparations in December due to a vacuum leak in its prime science instrument, the Seismic Experiment for Interior Structure, SICE. The new launch period for the mission begins May 5, 2018, with a Mars landing scheduled for November 26, 2018. The next launch opportunity is driven by orbital dynamics, so 2018 is the soonest the lander can be on its way. And no, they're not using the Rich Purnell manoeuvre. And finally, from Nature Astronomy, a paper just released by five Japanese researchers Tomoharu Oka, Shiho Tujimoto, Yuhai Iwata, Mariko Nomura, and Shunya Takikawa that could lead the way to answering some of the puzzling questions that we have about black hole evolution. Here's the abstract. It is widely accepted that black holes with masses greater than a million solar masses lurk at the centres of massive galaxies. The origins of such supermassive black holes remain unknown, although those of stellar mass black holes are well understood. One possible scenario is that intermediate mass black holes, which are formed by the runaway coalescence of stars in young compact star clusters, merge at the centre of a galaxy to form supermassive black holes. 
Although many candidates for intermediate black holes have been proposed, none is accepted as definitive. But recently, we discovered a peculiar molecular cloud with an extremely broad velocity width near the centre of our Milky Way galaxy. Based on the careful analysis of gas kinematics, we concluded that a compact object with a mass of about 10 to the power of 5 solar masses is lurking in this cloud. The compactness and absence of a counterpart at other wavelengths suggests that this massive object is an inactive, intermediate black hole, which is not currently accreting matter. This is the second largest black hole candidate in the Milky Way galaxy after SAG-A. This one could be a game-changer in our understanding of black hole evolution. And we'll finish this episode with 30 seconds of Cassini's recording of Auroras on Saturn. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave!